My name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab of the Molecular and Cellular Physiology Department here at Stanford. And welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week's guest is Dr. Ron Yu, an associate investigator at the Stowers Institute for Medical Research. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Yu. Thank you. So as an undergrad in China, the biography on your website says that you had to convince your university to let you take physics classes as well as biology classes. What led you to have such a strong simultaneous interest in both physics and biology? When I was in high school, I've been always wanted to do physics because I found that uh, um, trying to understand the fundamentals of the world. And by the time when I was applying for college, uh, I had to make a decision. Um, if I choose physics as my major, I have to go through this gruesome three-day exam, uh, college entrance exam. At the time, uh, the department chair at Tsinghua University, he was uh, uh, Mu Pu from, um, at the time he was at uh, UCRA, and he sort of introduced, uh, established the Department of Biological Sciences in Tsinghua University, and uh, they're trying to recruit some of the best students from all over China. And one condition they promise is that we can skip the exam. Uh. And uh, <laughs> so it's a little bit opportunistic in that sense, but also I was excited by the perspective of uh, biological science because at a the time they were talking about the biological sciences will be the um, science of the 21st century and all these things. Um, so I was excited and I was, uh, uh, you know, have both practical consideration and also by the inspiration. So I decided to give a try. I know that Tsinghua University is known for its uh, hard sciences and engineering. So I think, you know, if it doesn't work out in biology, at least I can switch to other department. So that was part of the consideration that promoted me to um, uh, into the biological science department. And, uh, and then during that period, um, I was studying the biology and, uh, but I will still have my passion in physics. Um, and by my third year, I really want to take those hardcore physics classes. And uh, the, um, the, the problem is that we have a very heavy load course in, in our department. We're taking math with computer science majors and we are taking uh, chemistry with chemistry majors, uh, and so on and so forth. So adding another layer of physics will be very hard, and they said, no, you can't do it. I convinced them that you give me one semester of chance, let me prove that I can do it, and uh, they were convinced after a semester, so I was able to uh, get through the, the courses. Huh. Yeah. So how useful do you think that dual training has been in your career as a neurobiologist? Uh, I would think that uh, in terms of specific knowledge, probably not, but the way of thinking and this background of uh, uh, understanding of the physical world and the logic behind these things are very important. So in my own research, I, we're building our own machines, for example, then uh, there's a lot of things that you have to think in terms of engineering terms uh, and in physics terms. And in thinking about neurobiological problems like coding or circuitry, and those um, uh, physical thinkings plays an important role in my own way of uh, thinking about problem. So I think those are very important. And you know, if you look at the history of biology, many of the breakthroughs are introduced by mathematicians, physicists, 
and uh, engineers. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you stick with traditional biology, I think we're still living you know, probably a century ago. <laughs> <laughs> Not to be dismissive, of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, after doing your undergrad work in China, you came to the United States and did your graduate work with Lorna Roll at Columbia. Yes. So what was that like scientifically and personally transitioning from China to the United States? It was pretty big change. Um, culturally, I don't feel so much of a change because New York City was uh, very crowded and dirty, just like <laughs> where I grew up. Um, so that was not too bad. Of course, English is a problem. The first year I was having a hard time understanding the lectures. But when it comes to equations, I have no problem. Mm-hmm. So my biophysics class uh, and when you come to biochemistry, when you are dealing with the uh, chemistry of things, that was easy. Molecular biology was a little bit harder for me. So when I was doing rotation, I got exposed to molecular biology, but I didn't want anything to do with it. So eventually, after a couple of rotations, I settled on the Ornus lab. Initially, she asked me to do molecular biology, and I saw people uh, doing electrophysiology. I said, you got to let me try it. And after two weeks, and she was really reluctant because, you know, for a rotation student, to learn how to patch clamp, it takes two to three weeks just to start. Mm-hmm. And by the time they're learning, uh, learn it, you're already moving on to the next rotation. So I said, no, 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 Lorna, you got to have me try it. So she was letting me to go through this process. And after two weeks, I said, Lorna, this is what I want to do. And I, can I stay? She said, oh, I was waiting for that. Great. <laughs> <laughs> so she is very nurturing. She was a very nurturing mentor and letting me have all the freedom to do the work on my own terms. You know, I can spend... Um, a week producing nothing, or the next uh, three days doing non-stop experiment, actually, you know, trying to persuade me to do other ways. And uh, we'll meet every half a year or a year. I'll give her a load of data, and she wow. goes through that, and uh, then said, "Okay, you know, this kind of things that we can do, and I can disappear for a while without uh, uh, telling her what I'm doing." <laughs> uh, but so this is great, uh, and uh, and I, I'm uh, fortunate to have. Both my mentors operating like that, so give them the intellectual freedom and the freedom to do your own work at your own pace. And of course, you have to be very driven to do that. Um, otherwise, you will not be producing anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is this the same? Do you are you uh, are you mimicking uh, your your mentors in the in your management style in your own lab? More or less the same. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, you know, I have a lot of. Uh, um, undergrad student and some graduate students and when they come I basically said you got to figure out what you want to do and then once you figure out your on your own and of course we're helping you and then you can make great discoveries and that turned out to be the case I had some students who can pull my lab who had pulled my lab into a different direction mm-hmm. after they have left so I mean some of these things are I think I attributed to that allowing the students to be able to take their own initiatives and the gracing can happen. Hmm. Yeah. So in 2008, your lab published a paper showing that mice are able to distinguish gender and specific individuals by a specific encoding in the vomeronasal organ of urine mm-hmm. pheromones. Can you describe what you found? Yeah, so the question uh, of um, gender discrimination is very different, or we actually at the time we don't know much about uh, how gender discrimination is achieved 
and or the kind of signal that is being perceived by the uh, hormonal organ or sort of hormonal organ by the mice. Um, in insect species, that's relatively simple. You have, uh, you know, the pheromones that have been identified, and you have a very delicate circuit to process this information. And in male and female, they're different. They re react to the same pheromone in the sexually dimorphic manners. The males, uh, I mean, the mouse is very different because uh, instead of having this one dedicated receptor for one dedicated pheromone, there are 200, more than 200 receptors in the hormonal organ. It's a dedicated organ to do that. And the question will be, um, is um, the perception of, uh, of of a sex of another individual is mediated by a combinatorial activation of many different type of neurons using different receptors or using a single type of receptors. Um, and the same uh, goes to the identification of genetic background, individuals, and uh, also the uh, hormonal status of the um, other animal. So at the time, the sex identification is not known. And the, but there was a notion that uh, the genetic background can be conveyed by those uh, MHC peptides because those mm -hmm. are genetically determined peptides and then can trigger. So what we found is that uh, through um, this uh, profiling of the responses, at a time we don't know which receptor is doing what, we still don't know much about that. By profiling the response, we can identify a very small population of cells that respond to all the male urine samples, but none of the female urine samples individually. And a slightly larger group of cells that respond to the female urine samples, all of them, not the male ones. So that gives us an idea that there is some kind of dedicated cell, on the, perhaps a dedicated circuitry, to process this so-called pan-male or pan-female responding uh, uh, signals. And then we also identified that uh, um, in female, at least, uh, uh, there are signals that are tied to the estrous cycle. You have cells that are only get activated by the estrous urine, regardless of which strain, which individual comes from. If they're in the right estrous um, period, then these cells will be activated. By so the mice this. can smell when the when the female is ready to copy. Yes, yes. And uh, and then we also show that individual and genetic background does not have this kind of component. So we used those peptides, those called MHC peptide from different strains, and uh, used them to stimulate. And we don't see any consistent patterns that with the strain that the urine is coming from. Hmm. So that suggests that the genetic background and uh, um, individual information is encoded through this combinatorial activation of many different receptors. And uh, the sex pheromones are identified by the very, very unique activation of these cells. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that basically provided the basis of for us to identify which receptor is responsible for recognition of these different signals. Do you think that it's potentially a learned phenomenon that you would have found something different if you would, if that if an individual become familiar with a particular set of activations that the representation could develop in a way to become more sparse, whereas a naive exposure would be would be initially more combinatorial like. Yeah. So uh, the the answer is that we haven't rigorously tested this uh, hypothesis. But my feeling is that uh, um, the learning probably is not going to change the response profile. I mean, there, you're going to have change in 
reaching expression levels and things like that. Uh, the problem is that we don't know the specific receptors that encode these responses to immediate these responses. And uh, so without those individual receptors identified and being tracked, any experimental results will be sort of subject to interpretation. Yeah. So our goal is to identify these receptors. So we have been doing this uh, single-cell RT-PCR experiments mm -hmm. to use this patterned profile of response and identify a particular cell, let's say the, the cells that respond to male pheromones alone. Pick those single cells and identify which receptor is expressed by these neurons. So yeah. we have made a lot of progress in that sense. And uh, we have... Uh, male receptors, female receptors, and the estrus receptors identified. Um, so we're still trying to finesse it uh, and haven't uh, got to the papers together yet. Interesting. Okay, cool. So in 2012, you published a somewhat surprising paper where you showed that contrary to almost every other sensory modality, there is no spatial organization of chemical features in the olfactory bulb glomeruli. Can you describe that research for people who may not be familiar? Yeah, so... This goes to the idea of what is what is map is for. So in most of the um, uh, other modalities in visual system, in auditory system, and in somatosensory system, the map is somehow mapping some kind of physical feature. Right. right. So somatosensory is the body plan, uh, visual is the visual space, and auditory is the frequency domain. And it's very natural that because olfactory is chemical senses. So it's very natural that uh, the, um, the olfactory map could be encoding the chemical features. And that's been the idea in the last three years. People have been talking about that, showing evidence. But there's something that do not quite make sense because, you know, when you're selecting um, uh, a odor receptor being kept in evolution, does the receptor actually care about the chemical structures at all? Mm -hmm. So that's the question we're being asking. And the, some of the experiments has been done in the past 30 years using imaging is uh, because the limitation of what the, um, the, the method can allow you. You can image maybe 10, 20 odors at a time. And uh, of course, the odorants also we know that at high concentration activate more glomerulus. So the problem is that you, how do you deal with this concentration and different odorant? And so what we did is that we developed this G-Camp mouse that we can image through the skull of the, uh, the animal without opening it up and still get, you know, 40%, 25 to 40% thereof or RAF, very strong signal. Mm -hmm. Um, and this sensitivity allowed us to image a large panel of odor. So we can do 200 stimuli within an hour and a half. And that's unprecedented. Um, so we can run through these experiments, both, in both varying the chemical structure of the odorant and the concentration of the odorant. And so we can have a very comprehensive map uh, in the olfactory bulb. And so this, all, is, so this is before before people were limited by, say, calcium, the, the bulk loading of, of calcium, which can only right. stay around for a half an hour or so. Yeah, or, or they can stay for a few days, but the sensitivity is relatively low. And also, you know, we have built our olfactometer that can precisely control the odorant delivery uh, in uh, very precise timing and in mm -hmm. precise concentration. Uh, so we can quickly switch to a different panel of odors and can run through this very quickly. Uh, and we also develop a pipeline to image, uh, to analyze the image data because, you know, if you have, um, 100 glomeruli 
and you have a 200 stimuli. Yeah. That's 20,000 of traces to process. So we can, if you do it, you know, initially when we were doing that, it takes a month just to go through the, the date. So now we can do that within a week mm-hmm. um, to process the entire set of, of data, uh, automate it. Um, so that facilitated analysis. So by mapping this large set of odorant and all within a single animal. So we analyze everything within a single animal. Uh, and the previous tests also have to assemble a lot of different uh, animals in, in, in different experiments to draw the conclusion. So that makes a big difference because when you're looking in individual metaline, the anatomy is not so fixed. They're stereotyped, but they're not fixed. A could be uh, next to each other in one animal, but a few glomeruli away in another animal. So this kind of relationship, if you think that uh, to buy assemble data from multiple animals together, then you're reducing your resolution. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing a much more blurred picture. So when we analyze this at higher resolution, higher temporal resolution as well, also uh, at a much more uh, larger panel of odors. And we, we, we look at the relationship between the glomeruli. And what we came up with is that, is that the chemical features are not correlated with whether the, the glomeruli are um, next to each other. Uh, however, if you look at the similarity in what they are activated by, then you can conclude that the neighboring glomeruli can be similarly tuned to certain odors, but these odors may not have the same chemical features. So, for example, you know, let's draw a visual analogy. So, what you can have is that the two neighboring cells, one's tuned to green and uh, blue, right? The neighboring cells can be also green and blue, mm-hmm. uh, it, but it's not that the cell is only to blue and light blue. So it can be tuned to different colors or more of a red and blue is more of a appropriate. So yeah. it can be red and blue, but not has to be blue and light blue and somehow a little bit of green. Right. Right. So, so they can be similar in their tuning, but the feature they're tuned to can be very different. Hmm. I mean, but the, the pair of glomeruli can be tuned to similar features, but the features doesn't have to be identical. So it, you know, doesn't have to be all the height together. It can be aldehyde plus like alcohol plus a ketone. Yeah, so there's the chemical features is not tied to the map itself, but the neighboring glomerula can be similarly tuned. So that's a fine distinction, I think, uh, can be confusing uh, when you're talking about chemical features. Yeah, it's not something that we have as much of an intuitive sense uh, yeah. about. Uh, yeah, so essentially you, we, will f- we find the glomerula that can be tuned to a straight-chain carbon but also can be activated by a ring. So that says that this glomerulite does not care about the specific structure of the chemical. Um, but if this glomerulus is activated by these common things, the neighboring ones are likely to be activated by these things. So similarity in their tuning can be conflated with the structures if you're using a simple set of uh, odorant to stimulate. Right, yeah. So, I mean, in a sense, it's it still could be in, in a way, it's, it is still in a way laid out in terms of the space of chemicals, but the space of chemicals doesn't necessarily map in a one-to-one way with the space of odors in the way that you know, visual space is laid out or mm-hmm. positioned along your body and that, you know, the receptors don't care about the actual chemical structure. They care about the, the odors that, that they represent in the real. In the exactly. Real yeah. So, 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 so the title of our, of the paper was 
we would call a tunnel topic. So if you generalize the the map from the odorant to the other sensory systems, you can argue that in the other system it's also tunnel topic. Basically, in the visual system, you are tuned to uh, different is the spatial position, which are similar to each other. That's a right. tunnel topic. And in spectral, uh, uh, in the in the auditory system, the spectrum is similar, similarly tuned uh, next to each other. So in that sense, they're still also a tunotopic map. Right. Same for you know other systems too. Yeah. So what we're trying to say is that this is more of a general principle. Is the the organization of the neurons or the glomeruli or whatever you have it is that they organize in a way that the neighboring cells have similar tuning, but the physical features of what they're tuned to can be quite disparate. So I'm going to ask you a, a bit of a speculative question next. Yeah. Uh, we were speaking with Albert Lee uh, from Genelia Farm, and I asked him what technology he'd like to see to become available in the next 10 years. And his suggestion was something which could turn off synaptic input between specific types of cells. So, for example, remove the contribution of CA3 inputs uh, into CA1, ideally in an inducible and or reversible manner. And in Richard Dactyl's lab, uh, you worked with expressing a part of tetanus toxin, which is capable yes. of shutting down synaptic transmission. Can you yeah. see a way that the that we might modify tetanus toxin to accomplish the kind of thing that Albert was hoping for? Yeah, that requires some engineering. Um, I think the, the you know genetically inducible way, that's what we did, either silence the neuron using KR 2.1, the potassium channel, or using tetanus toxin light chain are relatively slow. So you cannot quickly test because you have to feed dogs to turn it off and uh, to manipulate that. It's not as versatile as we wish. Um, so what I think that uh, it's possible, um, uh, this may take decades to develop, but I think it's possible with, with our understanding of the, the, the protein and, uh, and also this new trend of developing uh, ways to evolve different proteins to serve certain functions. Um, I think that's going to be doable. Hmm. So I, I recently went to a, um, a genomic engineering and uh, uh, synthetic biology keystone meeting. I was fascinated by it. Uh, and uh, Frances Arnold, she has this developed. She has developed all these uh, uh, evolution, directed evolution of proteins, mm -hmm. and to re-engineering you know, P450 cytochrome protein and enzymes to serve different functions. So what I find that fascinating, and we certainly can use those approaches in our design of the protein that we can use as tools, uh, but we need the assay to quickly uh, assess how well the evolution, direct evolution is doing that for us. Right. But here is an approach that we can take to um, develop these tools. Interesting. So uh, finally, I'd just like to give you a chance to give us a brief teaser about what you're going to talk about uh, in your visit here to Stanford. Yeah, so what I'm going to be talking about uh, is the, the functional contribution of the olfactory map in, in coding. Generally speaking, I think people recognize the importance of this glomeruli, but the problem of why you have this convergence is a mystery. So we have played some genetic tricks to alter these projection patterns, and then we applied um, multiple uh, approaches including electrophysiology, imaging behaviors, and uh, theoretical modeling to figure out what this convergence is doing for computationally, representationally, 
for to encode older information. Cool. So in closing, uh, we'd just like to ask a series of kind of brief rapid fire uh, questions. The answers don't need to be that long. Um, so if you could speak to yourself as a graduate student, what advice would you give yourself? Do what you love to do. I think that's the most important thing. If you don't like it, then why bother? And that's the most important thing. So Stuart Firestein has argued that science is driven by ignorance and not by knowledge, that what we don't know is more important than the, what we do know. So what's the most important thing that you don't know? Yeah, that there's so many of them. <laughs> the nice thing about uh, being at the forefront of science is that the more discovery you make, the more things you will find that you are totally ignorant. Mm even for this kind of question that I'm going to be talking about, right, you know, it's sort of obvious that the thing is doing something. But then you ask, you know, what does it do? You actually have no answer to it. So that's what inspired us to, to, to perform this, uh, uh, exp these experiments to address this problem. And during this process, as we were modeling it, there were so many surprises and sort of taken us one step to another. So you essentially, I think, now, Stuart is absolutely right because the, the 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 at the boundary you are expanding what you don't know, although you are accumulating more that you already know. Yeah. So you are expanding the circle. It's like that, the sphere of knowledge is literally expanding, and the and the yeah. and 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 the interface is bigger, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but that's where the, at the edge is where the most fun because we have the support of the knowledge, and then we can explore the unknowns. Yeah. So your science has taken you from Beijing to New York and now to Kansas City. So which place do you like uh, living in uh, personally the best? Uh, in, um, I'm conflicted uh, in this sense because I love New York and I you know miss a lot of scenes in New York, but I don't miss the congestion, the uh, the commute, and uh, the crowdness. Uh, and Kansas City is is a very nice place to live, especially when you have kids. Mm -hmm. You have so many things to do, and you can run around. Uh, and uh, it's relatively quiet. And but we have most of the things that big city offer. We have opera, we have museums, we have um, the theaters, and all these things that um, not as quality of New York mm -hmm. and not as much. Uh, but everything that big cities offers, we have it. So, you know, ideally I want to have both, but now I can travel to big cities and <laughs> to, to do things I like. Right, right. Big cities something. like Palo Alto, California. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if you didn't become a scientist, what do you think you'd be doing today? Oh, I have, we have jokes. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I have, you know, I have talked to my friends and uh, sort of said, you know, I couldn't think of anything else that I want to do. I'm probably something still in the intellectual pursuit, I would say. Uh, but science is still the most fun. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so thanks for speaking with us today, Dr. Yu. Okay, thank you. Yeah, uh, thank looking you. forward to see you guys. Yeah, and thank you all for listening. We we'll hope you join us next week when our guest will be Yin Shi Lin from MIT. NeuroTalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and myself. For more information about NeuroTalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.stanford.edu slash group slash neurite dash west, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E dash west.